it's hard for me to say yes. I mean, it's easier for me to say next year. When the weather's fine. When I have the money. Or the time. Or the relationship I want. Or the career, or the house, or the car, or the watch, watch. Life pass me by waiting for an invitation when the world is greater than my nation or my occupation. The only thing I know is that we're all in this together. And the future of this earth depends on how we treat each other. But how we treat each other starts with how we treat ourselves. And how we treat ourselves starts with how we see ourselves. And how we see ourselves starts with context. I mean, nothing can exist without its opposite. Remember this the next time you find you're in an argument and both sides are talking shit and you forget your point, except you're angry now and want to win so you continue yelling till they give it up by giving in so you can stand victorious because you're right. On what again? (laughs) Do we laugh on instinct or do we choose to laugh? Do we ask because we care or do we merely ask? I ask you this because I care about how humans act. We're animals aware of our future and our past. And this can be an obstacle to traveling our path. Instead of just accepting where we're at, we analyze our tracks for what we could have had. Looking back, focused on the memories instead of on the facts, hence what we attract. Still, it's strange to factor in how fast it really flashes past. It's an exponential graph from creation into ash. Me? I'm sentimental one minute. Then I'm making plans. Staking claims, shaking hands, breaking out or breaking in. I have about a billion mimes hidden underneath my skin, and they pull my face into this grin or push my wrinkled forehead in. So pour the gin and philosophize, because no one has your awesome eyes. Your view is worth the lows and highs we go through on this roller coaster ride. Control has got us holding on when letting go could be more fun. Hands up, feel the drop. Eventually, your life is going to stop. It's going to level out, then come back up until you reach a different top because one day all your wheels fall off. So take advantage of your shocks. Do something you've never done. Do someone you've never done. Go someplace you've never gone, someplace that will scare you some. Be someone you've never been. You feel all that adrenaline? It's medicine to jumpstart a spark inside your skeleton. See, everywhere you are is where you're supposed to be. So hopefully... You're hopelessly as lost as me. Because if you're not, you ought to be. That was the voice of NQ. And this week, we take a bit of a journey to the center of your soul. You may never look at poetry the same again after you hear more from my incredibly talented and very inspiring guest, NQ. Adam Schmalholz goes by the stage name of InQ or InQuestion. 
and is a very successful songwriter for Disney, Selena Gomez, Miley Cyrus, to name a few. But after winning the National Poetry Slam Championship, he is now best known for his poetry, which he has performed all over the world for presidents. He can currently be seen in his Amazon Prime special, In Q, Live at the Ace Theater, and his book, Inquire Within, has become a bestseller despite dropping it at the beginning of the pandemic. The audio version of the book has won an award, and after listening myself and not being able to even pause it for 90 minutes, I certainly agree. He is rhythmic, original, authentic, inspiring, and most of all, a really great guy. It's no wonder Oprah named him to her Super Soul 100 list of the world's most influential thought leaders. I really hope you enjoy our conversation that we had from his home in Santa Monica, where he was generous enough to share a new poem at the end of the show, as well as the one that you heard in our cold open. So take a deep breath and enjoy our honest conversation about his rise to fame and learn more about his storytelling workshops. There is a reason his videos have gone viral with nearly 100 million views. So before you listen, let's both do as InQ suggests and take a deep breath. Enjoy. Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey, where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. For most of the creative people I've spoken to over the last year, like Johnny Resnick of the Goo Goo Dolls, for example, who happens to live down the block, literally, although it's been so frustrating not being able to do their craft live, they've had plenty of time to consider tons of topics and challenge themselves to ask questions about themselves, their beliefs, and certainly in the middle of a global pandemic, a social justice revolution, to name a few. So I would imagine for you, Q, being an award-winning modern-day poet and multi-platinum songwriter and an astute observer of humanity, your brain must have been on fire with ideas for new poems or songs. Would that be accurate or maybe, you know, yes and no kind of thing? Yes and no. There were definitely moments when I was extremely inspired. And a whole piece would almost pour out of me. And I would even be surprised, you know, after a couple of hours at having something that was complete and something that I would want to share with the world. And then there were periods of time where I didn't write at all. You know, if you were lucky enough to be able to be quiet during the pandemic, which was a luxury, then that quiet was its own medicine. And so you know, it was certainly working on me like it was working on everyone. And there were lots of realizations that I had that I didn't wind up putting into poems because, you know, at least selfishly, they were mine for a while. Hmm. So I hate the term elevator speech. I really do. 
but I loved how you started your book, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. And folks, you've got to listen to this. Reading it is fine, but trust me, listening to this book is where it's at. To quote you, Q, the book opens, defining myself is like confining myself. So I undefine myself to find myself. Wow. I'm, I, maybe I could be a, a rapper. I don't know. I don't think so. I love that <laughs> you were always asking questions about everything. So what I want to really start the show off is, is talking about childhood, but specifically about asking questions as a kid. And the reason I bring that up is in, in, in one of my last conversations that I had with my good friend, Larry King, who lived not too far from you, where, where you're assuming Santa Monica today, he used to talk to me about the questions that he would ask growing up, like as young as he can remember. I don't know. Are you, are you a baseball fan at all? I mean, I was when I was a kid. I liked okay. Don Mattingly and stuff like that. I collected right. baseball cards. I watched. It kind of grew out of... Uh, mm-hmm being an avid baseball fan as an adult, but sure. And, memories of it. but your mom grew up in Brooklyn, right? Yep. So, okay. Crazy. So Larry, Larry talked, obviously he's a Brooklyn Dodger fan, grew up on Flatbush Avenue, uh, outside That's, I think where my mom grew up. Yeah. 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 La- Lafayette high school. And Larry used to sit outside Ebbets field where the stadium was, where the Dodgers played. And he would ask the players when it, then they left the ballpark, because he couldn't go in the ballpark because he was on welfare. In fact, New York City bought his first pair of glasses because he could never get in. But as the players would come out, he'd, he'd go up to Pee Wee Reese or Jackie Robinson, whoever it was, and he'd be like, why did you bump with two outs? And he would just sit there and his friends would, would just drive his friends crazy. But he just kept asking all of these questions. So, you know, it's kind of his earliest memory. So for you, were you, were you asking a lot of questions as a kid? Were you very curious? Yeah, I mean, I have different stages of my life, as everyone does, but my memory gets foggy uh, very quickly. So, like, most of my memories of my childhood are kind of, like, vague and ambiguous. What I can say in terms of asking questions is by the time I was in high school or something like that, I was very, very curious about people. And if I was in an environment that I could actually dive deep with someone, I would ask more layered questions than you would in a casual conversation. So people would wind up telling me a lot. Now that I'm older, I can easily connect that back to my mom because my mom was a school teacher. She was a writer as well. And she was in the Peace Corps and would always ask me questions about my day when I would come home. My father was not around at all. And so she was always very curious what I thought and felt And I think, to be quite honest, she consciously put a lot of her attention there because maybe she didn't feel that in her own household growing up. Now, even watching her talk to people, I mean, if you sit down with my mom, she'll get 20 questions in with someone before they even have a chance to get to know her at all. I think there's good things and bad things about that. But, you know, your superpower is your kryptonite. And I've certainly used that in my art. Mm -hmm. So we live in a mixed up world. And as you say, where everyone wants to be defined. So if you were asked this question that no podcaster should ever ask, and I think this is the first time I'm going to ask it, and I'm not happy I'm asking it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And the question is, what do you do? What would you say? Depends on what mood I'm in. (laughs) I like that. 
But if I was going to be honest, I would say I'm a poet, I'm a songwriter, a teacher, I'm an author, I'm a producer, and I'm a performer. And I would say I've put all of those things into different categories, and I've put all of those things into one category. And so they help inspire each other when I separate them. And then when I'm doing something that's just an in-cube performance, I tend to use every aspect of it from comedy to musicality to crowd participation to facilitating real conversation with the audience in the middle of a show. I think that makes kind of the NQ experience a very unique live experience to witness or even a very unique digital experience, which I've done over a hundred times since the pandemic started, you know. I'm glad you brought up live experiences because when I was watching the first time I watched it, I watched it a couple of times, the, the Amazon Prime special, the connection you had with the audience <laughs> And I'm going to mention Springsteen only probably three times in this episode, which is which is rare for me. But, you know, it, it reminded me of that kind of a connection that an artist has with with his with his crowd. It got to the point where I was standing. I was doing the stretches. I was I was I felt like I had to be part of it, which, hmm. you know, as, as I've said, I think I said this in a previous show. I said this to a former rabbi of mine that. Actually, on a flight back from California, where I had seen Bruce play three nights at the L.A. Sports Arena, and he happened to be out there. And just coincidentally, he was on the flight. and We sat next to each other. And he says, you know, I don't see you in Temple a lot. And I said, I just got back from Temple. Hmm. I said, if, if, if you could figure out a way to connect with the crowd in the way that Bruce Springsteen does or the way I felt sitting at Hamilton or an NQ concert, that's going to get me there. Anyway. The I love question, that you were giving your rabbi <laughs> performance advice. Yeah, yeah. Well, this story gets even weirder, but we'll just leave it at that, and he's no okay. longer no longer the rabbi here. But oh, the question. Whoa. That's, yeah, there's a rabbit hole there. He's found another place. We'll just, we'll just leave it at that. Nothing, nothing weird, nothing, okay. you know, Catholic church kind of stuff or nope. not just every religion's got that stuff. It was just some other stuff, but anyway, man, I, I, I bring up stuff. I, I, don't, I <laughs> that's a nice but uh, that's podcast what I, style that you have because yeah, it's very you know? off the cuff, even though I know you do research. I like when people ask questions that make me think about the answers rather than like, someone who asks a question that allows me to go into a standard answer. Right. Standard answers because they're true. They become cliches because they start out in truth and they're just like the easiest way to answer a question. But when someone asks me something that makes me think, that makes me pause, that's really interesting for me as well. So, Well, I have to credit Larry on that because watching him work and then being on radio myself for many years and TV and everything else that I've done while being in the financial services industry. To me, it's always been about curiosity, but it's also been about listening. And what's the point? Yeah, I have a little script in front of me and everything, but I'm looking at you. I'm listening to you. I'm thinking of things as we go along. And I'm thinking about the guy walking his dog outside, listening to a podcast right now. And what is he thinking? So I've just asked you about the audience participation and what, what comes into my mind is have you had some nights where that you haven't connected 
And how do you go back into your art if you feel like eh, the audience isn't, not that you're not connecting, but the audience doesn't want to stand up or the audience doesn't want to stretch or isn't laughing at the part that 99% of other crowds laughed at? Well, I hope so, because otherwise it would be boring. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you beat the game, why do you play it again? There's always things to learn. There's been plenty of nights where either I haven't shown up and didn't connect the way that I wanted to, or the audience was off for whatever reason, or someone individually in the audience was really triggered by something. I've had a couple of situations where people have walked out like yelling, like screaming at, at me. And then everybody claps and, you know, it becomes like a very real moment because, you know, there was something that I said, maybe it was personal, maybe it was political, maybe it was social, but it triggered them and kind of pushed them to a place where they couldn't sit still anymore. And they had to leave, they had to express themselves. While even that is frustrating and difficult to navigate as a performer, first of all, it tests me. So it forces me to grow in situations like that. And second of all, I know I'm doing my job. It doesn't feel good when someone doesn't respond to something that I say or, or the opposite, like has a really adverse response. But when you tell the truth, it's going to land differently with different people and you can't really control that. So all I try to do is show up to the best of my ability connect to the moment, connect to the people and try to create something together. You know, I, I don't consider my audience as separate from me when I'm performing. We're collaborating on a moment together. And I love that. And I think that's the, that's the beauty of the connection that I get at a lot of the, whether it's theater, whether it's music. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of going out. Why else am I not there if I'm not connecting? I want to be connecting in the audience. So it's, it's you know, obviously works both ways. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. It's just a beautiful thing. I told you that at uh, yeah. Jazz Fest. Yeah. Last time we spoke. And actually, I, I watched, I just watched, it's funny, I, they're, they're releasing more and more of that now on his YouTube page. And mm -hmm. I had I'd watched someone streamed it live that that day and... It's definitely one of the great regrets of my life. Even though I've got 300 other shows behind me, that was that was such a special show and such a special band that he put together. One of my friends, Eddie Mannion, was the sax player in that band. And Eddie and I talked about this on the podcast a few months ago. And he's played with Bruce all over the world. He's played with The Who. He's played with all, all just incredible amount of artists and as well as putting out his own material. And he specifically brought up Jazz Fest as really one of the top three nights of his life that he was Beautiful. just he was just so moved. And part of it was the intimacy of the stage. You know, when you when you had that the Seeger session band and you had maybe 15, 16 people jammed in this little stage. This wasn't MetLife Arena or Staples Center or whatever. That intimacy was just something else, and 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 Bruce actually has talked about that in the past, and I'm, I'm so glad you got to see that show. I think that was a gift. That was really an incredible gift for for, yeah. for anyone that was there. Absolutely. The whole show, the whole show was uh, the other artists too. I don't want to just single out Bruce. So 
One of the things you've said is that you've been writing your poems and songs your whole life. In other words, the moments of life provided you a palette to tell these stories that that made you. And we're just talking about Bruce is really funny because, you know, the theme in one of your poems about your dad, missing dads, or dads that weren't even there but still missing, which is kind of what Springsteen's experience was, it, it, it kind of runs rampant in a lot of art. In some of, in fact, one of the most painful yet beautiful poems in the first part of your book, you dive deep into that. And we'll, we'll probably play a little clip of that in a moment. But most talented and creative people like you had a rough start. Can you talk about your days growing up, to name a Springsteen song again, but the effect of on your body of work so far? Yeah, I think that we are who we are based on everything that we've experienced. And if you removed anything from the equation, you would have a different answer. That was quite poetic, actually. I've never said that before, but I I liked it. That's why I was letting it kind of stand for a bit. That's okay. I'm at a stage in my life where I don't have any regrets. There's nothing that I wish I could turn back time and change. There's definitely things that I would do differently if I had a similar situation come up in real time. But I think it's just such a waste of energy to look back from a place of being a victim to the things that have happened to us. And I'm not even saying that this is right or wrong. I'm just saying that it's a personal choice that I want to take responsibility for those things. I want to take ownership over those things. I want to find power in those things. I know that people that are listening to this might have unimaginable things in their past. And they might be thinking, how can you say that? You don't understand what has happened to me. And the truth is, I don't. And there are things in life that we can't ever make sense of. I didn't have an experience with my father where I was able to make sense of that relationship before he passed away. So there's no easy way for me to wrap that up in a bow, but it's still a present. I choose to give it to myself. So I would just say finding power in your life is moment to moment. It's incremental and accumulative, and it's a choice. If I look back on that experience with my father, it's made me who I am, and I'm grateful for it. Show will probably air around Father's Day, so I'm going to throw this this question in. As of now, you're you're not a father, correct? No, I am married. But right, I'm you are father. married. Okay. Do you ever think about if you become a dad? Some of the things that it's such a big part of your work in in, in that in talking about that relationship and things that you've learned and things that you know made sense to you and didn't make sense to you that. When you become a dad, I mean, there's, listen, there's, there's, there's no rule book. I mean, I, I remember to this day coming home from the hospital and looking at this little thing that's now 28 years old. And, you know, everyone handed, they handed me a book called Ferber and they said, you know, this is how to get the kid to go to sleep. And I threw the book in the crib because I, you know, I, I was just, I had to go with my gut instinct and pretty much everything that I've done and including with my wife over the years has been gut instinct. 
Some were dead on and some were way, way off. But it created this human being now that I couldn't possibly be prouder of. And I say the same about my daughter in case she decides to listen to my podcast, which isn't that often. Georgia, you could listen and write about it in People Magazine just once, but just saying. She writes for people. But anyway, I'm getting her to write about you. That's one thing I'm going to do. There you go. But, <laughs> but anyway, it, I'm, I'm taking a, a long walk around just the father question and something if you've thought about it all. Have I thought about being a father and how that yeah, would impact my life? Right, and things that you would want to do differently. I mean, yeah, I'd want to be there. Yeah, <laughs> that would be the first thing. That's, that would be yeah. the number one thing. It's kind of game over after that. I mean, yeah. yeah I mean, I didn't meet up. my dad. <laughs> I didn't meet my dad until I was fifteen, and we didn't have a great relationship after that. It's not like we met, and all of a sudden, you know, it wasn't like this is us. People were yeah throwing <laughs> yeah. rose petals and stuff, yeah. and and classical music was playing in the background. It was like contentious and difficult and. You know, we had a handful of times in the future when I would come out to New York because he was from New York and we would be able to spend a little bit of time. But I never felt like I got to know him and I never felt like he was able to see me for various reasons that I won't go into. So I think the first thing is being there. And I think the second thing would be seeing who this person is. My mother's first love and, and my father's mistake. They weren't married. They weren't in love. It was complicated, man, to say yeah. the least. Right. And so there's things that I've learned from my mom that I would want to try to apply to having children myself. And then there are things that I've learned from my mom that maybe I would try to change. And then there's things from my dad that even though he wasn't around, I still very much respect. I very much respect his intellect. I very much respect what he did in the world. I won't get into it, but mm -hmm. he did a lot of... um social causes that were meaningful to him through his work. And that's something I deeply admire. So it's strange that here's somebody that I don't respect at all for how they showed up in my life, but I deeply admire some of the things that they chose to do with their time. You know, so th there's things you can take from every relationship and every person. But I think I would like to take the ride of being a father. It seems like the craziest ride you could take on the planet. It seems like your capacity to love would be a hundredfold. So that's something that I'm excited about. And I do think that there will be some sort of a full circle experience for me if I'm so lucky to create life with my wife. But I know I'm going to mess it up. Of course you are. We all do. And I guess it's just how much I mess it up on that scale. And I would like to create a situation to where it might not be perfect, but we can see each other. And I don't mean see each other. I mean, see each other. Disney in his, in his wildest imaginations could have never created a ride like parenthood. Never. No, no never. way, man. Never. So <laughs> the other thing Larry King taught me is to not bury the lead, but I've kind of buried it already. So how did you go from Adam to in queue? So NQ was short for in question, and that was a nickname that my friend gave me when I was like 15 or 16. I was actually searching for a rap name, and he was like, you should be inquiry because you ask so many questions. 
And I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. And then I just started going by inquiry and then people started calling me NQ and then people started calling me Q. And I rarely heard my real name after that. And then when I got into like my 20s, NQ changed from being short for inquiry to, to being in question. So really it's Adam in question. You know, it's a, it's a life philosophy. It's beautiful. So full disclosure, I, I apparently was living under a rock as I, I recently, only recently met Q online at kind of a Woodstock of podcasters that he was a keynote at. And I, I was just so inspired listening to, to his work and his poems. And I mean, that's actually a pretty huge understatement. I was, I was really moved and anyone in my life knows that that's all I talked about for the next few weeks and, and just kept sending them your videos. Cause it was just, you know, it's just, it's just, and that doesn't happen too often with me other than Springsteen. So imagine my surprise after finding out and we talked that I suggested to you, Hey dude, you should write some music. And then I found out much to my embarrassment, you know, he kind of wrote a ton of songs for Disney movies. He's had a multi-platinum hit single, Love You Like a Love Song for Selena Gomez and some songs for Miley Cyrus, Foster the People, just to name drop a few. But I, I, I kind of want to talk about the process. Is the process different for writing? Nobody writes hit songs. They just write songs. But writing songs versus writing uh, some of the Disney music versus dealing with all of these personal topics and social justice that you have in your poetry work. Yeah, I mean, I was in the studio yesterday working with an artist and I have a collaboration partnership with production team and really like a record label. And I mean, this team, Rock Mafia, it's hard to describe them, but they're some of the best producers in the world. They came to a poetry show years and years ago. I mean, probably 11 or 12 years. and, And I think that they saw something in me and wanted to have me come in and try my hand at crafting lyrics and songs. And I had rapped my whole entire life as well as doing poetry, but I was never like a songwriter. I never had an interest. I never had an opportunity. And so they really opened the door to that whole world for me. And because of the success that they already had and the opportunities that they already had, they invited me in on songs that I would have never had a chance to be on. So I owe a lot to Tim and Antonina. And now we just collaborate when there's something to do. I mean, we've written over 40 Disney songs or something like that for TV movies and had a bunch of hits, you know, and then pop stars and R&B stars, Aloe Black. I've written with Mike Posner and I love it. It's very different than what my experience is writing alone because I'm the writer, the director, the editor, the performer. I'm everything when I'm writing alone. And I have to check in with myself to know, is this right? And there's just this one internal voice that whispers yes or no. And if I listen and I can hear it, then I know where I'm supposed to go next or I know to put the pen down. Have you ever Um, had a situation where... And I know you, you know, obviously you write in a notebook and now obviously you also write on your phone or jot notes that you have an idea or you've written something and you're trying to figure out what genre to put it in. Like, 
damn, this is so good. I'm saving it for my, my show or for my, you know, for, for, for what I'm doing, you know, my slam poetry. But on the other hand, wow, this would make an incredible pop song for Taylor Swift or, or whoever. I mean, do you ever, is there a balance? Is there, you know, sometimes like, eh, I think back, people must think all I ever talk about is Springsteen, but anyone, a lot of people who listen know that. But I think of a song, Because the Night, which Bruce couldn't finish. He just couldn't finish. And he loved Patti Smith. Frank Stefanko, photographer, took cover of Darkness on the Edge of Town and, and The River, talked about this on, on my show. That's why I know the story. And Frank took him to see Patti Smith and, and he got to meet Patti and, and, and Bruce called her up and said, you know, I got this song. I can't finish it. And she finished it. And she gets, she said, well, here, put it on your next record. And he goes, no, it's yours. It's yours. Hmm. She says, what, what? It's yours. And he did the same with fire, which he gave to the pointer sisters. So I'm just wondering if, if that's ever been something you're, you know, as, as, as you're maturing in, in the role of, of your day job, so to speak, are you finding that, a balance there or, or that become an issue at all? No, because they're very different styles in terms of like the actual writing. Like my poetry is very choppy. It's very rhythmic. There's a lot of content in sometimes really short spaces and they're like essays. You know, some of them are three minutes. Some of them are eight minutes. They're these really long winded statements that I'm making and I'm exploring all these different avenues. And then I arrive somewhere in the end. Whereas a pop song is very spacious. It's very round and you can't really fit very much information in there. So you have to find a way to say something that's deep and simple simultaneously, because if you say something that's too deep, it might take someone out of the song and you don't want to take them out of the song. You want them to be in the song, you, but you also want them to be able to listen to it a hundred times and always be sparked by not only the melodies, but hopefully the concepts. So they're just very different things. Have I had artists that have come to me and said, I would love to take one of your poems and make songs out of it? Yes, I have. I've never had a hit yet, but there are some things that people have done that I've really enjoyed. And I'm great with that because... I want to get the work out there to as many people as possible. So I'm not as precious if someone wants to remix it or take the lyrics and do something different. And then I've also been able to have the opportunity to do poems over other artists. So like there's a Grammy nominated artist, uh, Zoo, who's like DJ and a producer. And, you know, he's an incredible songwriter. And I went in and laid one of my tracks from a poem standpoint down and then he put it into a song and that song, you know, has and continues to be played all around the world. And so that's nice, you know, to know that my voice is showing up in, in Barcelona or, you know, Madrid. I'm thinking back to the first time I saw Hamilton and the uniqueness of the, the style that Lin-Manuel did there. I'm curious from your perspective, what you thought the first time you saw Hamilton. So the first time that I heard Hamilton is yeah. really the better question because yeah. I, I didn't get a chance to see it until later. Right. So I was very familiar with the album 
by the time I actually sat down and saw it. Which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. It's look, important. It was, I'm glad I knew it, knew it cold. I think it would have been a very different experience. And I'm not even saying that it was better one way or the other, because it, it might have been pretty wild to just show up and not have heard anything and just experience it. Like I think about the people that, you know, went into the public theater when they were first putting it up, yeah. having absolutely no I idea. A, what I have they a good friend who into. saw one of the first performances there. And I, I remember them just going crazy about it. Said this is unlike anything you'll ever see. Yeah. But for me, I listened to the album on a trip that I took that was solo to India. And I like to travel a lot. Even now that I'm married, sometimes I'll travel by myself. I think it will be harder with kids, but I still want to try to create the space to do that because I think when you take yourself outside of your comfort zone purposely, you're going to grow and you're going to learn things about the world and yourself. And I consider that my job, you know, to pay attention to how I change the world and how the world changes me. So anyway, I was like literally touring around India and I was there for almost a month and I just played the album nonstop every which way, you know, <laughs> beginning to end. I mixed it up end to beginning. This is like a really, really powerful and brilliant world-class work of art. And it was unique and it was imaginative and yet it was grounded. So I have the highest respect for Lynn and the entire cast. Well, what really fits is what you say is that your mission is to wake people up to not being a victim of their reality. Would, would you say that the answer to that is, is empathy or is there a lot more? I think empathy is a great start, but you have to start with empathy for yourself before you can really, I guess, own empathy for other people. And by the way, this isn't a destination. It's a journey. It's not like I'm saying I've come to some point of enlightenment where I understand empathy and compassion. No, I get triggered all the time, but it's about learning as much as I can, being kind to myself and others, and hopefully looking back on my life and saying, you did good. And if I look back on the last year or I look back on the last five years, that's what comes to mind is I've done good. And I hope that I'll look back on myself now in five years and, and say the same thing. You've done good. With the word financial in my show title, I thought we might talk a little business. Uh, every now and then I forget that that's the name of the show. No math, so don't worry about that. Personally, I suck at math, so I wouldn't put it in myself. I'm interested when I talk to entertainers or athletes about their history and even deeper, their relationship with money. So mm -hmm. it's a tough topic. It's a really tough topic as here in the good old USA, we rank 14th in the world in financial education. It is still easier in most households to talk about sex than money. Hmm. That's deep. That hasn't changed. I mean, it's not the Donna Reed generation. Mom's not vacuuming with pearls anymore. And then we're all sitting down at six o'clock, like leave it to Beaver. But the reality is, in very few households, people aren't talking about money. And that's something that is huge and important in my life. And I'm fortunate to have helped in some ways to create a financial literacy class that's now taught in every high school in New Jersey. And you Amazing. can't graduate without it. But I'm that's curious. Huge. Yeah, it, it is. And it's, it's got to get better. But, you know, I, I'm always interested in when I talk to folks like you, 
everyone has a money personality, savers, spenders, accelerators, breaks. Maybe talk about your story, as I know you had struggles growing up, obviously, and now you're having success. So what have you learned? And if you were to write about money, maybe you have already, what would you want to say? I think money represents time. And the more money you make, the more time you have. I've never been on anyone else's timeline. So I never had to go in to some place and fit into the hierarchical structure of a, an office for an extended period. There were lots of interim period jobs that I had. And I used to be the receptionist at a graphics design place. And I used to work at the Westwood Rec Center for years and, you know, close up the uh, basketball courts at night and, you know, worked as a runner at a law office and just fought traffic all day. But all of these were interim period jobs as I was pursuing my art full time. And for years, I did not make a living wage at my art. I mean, it's hard enough to figure out how to make it as an artist, but to monetize poetry, I mean, it was a really long road for me. And I would say that I wouldn't be where I am if I hadn't had the opportunity to expand into songwriting because songwriting gave me a financial foundation that I had never had. Then I very consciously got back into building a business around my poetry because it was something I was really passionate about. And I had a safety net. I had, you know, a, a stream of income that was coming in. And now I'm in a place where, you know, even during the pandemic, I mean, I've done, just done countless shows. I mean, I get hired by companies and corporations, or I do public shows, or I do workshops. And, and it's really incredible if I was to, you know, talk to myself at 30, myself at 30 would be like, really? You know? And if myself at 30 talked to myself at 15, <laughs> myself at 15 would be like, really? You know? <laughs> I had such idealistic views about who I was in the world and what my art was going to be. But I've really enjoyed this winding road. And now I'm at a place where I have financial freedom and independence and it's almost embarrassing to tell people what my rate is. You know, someone was asking me the other day and my manager wasn't around. So I literally answered myself and it was like kind of embarrassing, you know, but it's not for that hour or the two hours and doing a workshop. It's for the 30,000 hours that I've put in to get to who and where I am as a poet and as a facilitator. That's what a doctor, a lawyer someone, you know, that ilk that, you know, maybe has put in all those years. Some of them deserve their hourly. Oh, they all deserve, everybody deserves to be paid. You know, it's, it's subjective, but it's, it's, you got to feel like you deserve it. And obviously you do. When, when you watched Amanda Gorman give mm -hmm. her the inauguration speech, which obviously was, an I think, an incredible moment in our history, and it couldn't have come at a better time, let's face that. But from the standpoint of a man who's making a living as a poet, and I, I maybe go back to uh, Socrates, Plato, and, you know, and, and um, all back then, not so easy to do. 
when 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 you watched her, I guess the question really is when you when you watched her speak, where you were like, "Damn, look at that! Wow, this is this is this is amazing that this is what's been chosen to, at this moment." Yeah, I mean, we've had always an inaugurate poet, right? Is that how you would say it? Like, you well, know. except for we'll just say except for one, but yeah, yeah. Oh, who didn't Trump? Uh, yeah, I think that goes without saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was hard for me to watch. So yeah, I yeah. I tuned out. But the the answer is I was extremely proud of her, even though I didn't know her. And I was extremely proud of poetry because, I mean, that's where the, the proud feeling came from. I'm going to be proud for someone that I don't know, but she's a young woman and she captured the imagination of a nation with that poem. And the proud feeling came from somebody who's a lifelong poet. And it was amazing to see not only her, but poetry center stage and to see how people responded. Because even though there have been many poets at inaugurations before, I don't recall in my lifetime a response like that. It's really wonderful. I know that she's built on that and and created even more momentum in her life and her career, and she deserves it. I said to my wife, who works at Time Magazine, as we were watching, I said, if she is not on the cover, I'm literally going to be standing outside this, a building when you guys are back, and I'm just going to you know, have some placard and be protesting nonstop because it was, it was so special. And, and, I, and I, I, just, I just love that, that art and poetry had that moment because that's, I, think, I, think, I think it's a game changer in many ways. Look, it's one of the reasons that I started my podcast. You know, the podcast that I'm doing is spotlighting the best poets of our right. generation. Right. We will link to that, which is wonderful, by the way. But the reason that I wanted to do it, the, the desire came from the fact that there wasn't a lot of platforms that brought that exposure to these artists. And, you know, some of the best experiences I've ever had were watching another poet on stage. And so I wanted to dive into their story. And Amanda is incredible. And there's also 50 poets that you've never heard of that would explode your heart wide open. So it's something to uh, take into consideration if you're listening to this. So as someone that has a guttural need to tap into my own creative side at least once a day, for, for me, it's like oxygen, honestly. And I know that because I had a number of years where I wasn't and I, I, I really, really couldn't breathe. I thought maybe you have some tips for, for listeners on how to get their creative juices flowing, especially while many are still working from home. I think you have to choose something that is moving and meaningful to you, and then you have to create time and space. There's really no universal secret other than that. If you're waiting for inspiration to come, you might be waiting for a long time. But if you create the space for inspiration to come through, it will come through in that moment. If I was to sit down at a uh, blank piece of paper, it's infinite possibilities or a canvas. You know, I could walk up to a canvas and just be overwhelmed by the pressure. What am I going to create? Is it going to be good? All of these types of things. But if I sit down with a blank sheet of paper or a canvas and I think, what's going on in my life right now? You know, like what pisses me off or what am I inspired by? Or when was the last time I've been moved? And I start the painting from that place or I start the poem from that place. It gives it 
structure to play within. So to anybody that's listening to this, choose your genre that you want to mess around with, put it on the calendar. I'll just take poetry as an example because that's what I do. And think about your life <laughs> and choose something moving and meaningful and then put a time clock on for a half an hour. And if you intend it to be a poem, it's a poem. I mean, that's what I do when I do these workshops. I mean, even digitally, they always work because as long as I'm leading by example in terms of being vulnerable, people want to follow. People are dying to be heard and to hear and to connect. But since I'm not there with you, just do it on your own. You don't need me. Pick something that's moving and meaningful, something you wouldn't discuss after 15 minutes at a dinner party and just start to write intend it to be a poem and definitely don't edit while you're doing it. Don't think about it being great. If it's honest and it's true, then it will automatically be great. And then when you're done, share it with someone because a poem isn't really complete until it's witnessed. So the writing is for you. If you want to be full circle, then choose somebody in your life and say this weird dude on a podcast named NQ told me to do this. See what happens. I love that. You can't strategize your inspiration. You really That's can't. It. You really can't. You know, you said, think about your life. And, and that brought me back to probably one of my other favorite Broadway shows. And this is an older one, Pippin and Stephen Schwartz, one of the first shows he wrote. And one of the great songs is uh, Ben Vereen sings to him, but Magic To Do. But in, in Magic To Do is a line, think about your life, Pippin. And it really is the key to that whole show. You know, it's back in the days of Charlemagne and forget the, forget the show, but it's the line. Think about your life. I love it. I love it. I love it. I thought you were saying <sighs> Scottie Pippen. I'm a Nick fan, so okay. you'll never hear Scott. I'm, I'm, I will praise I'm Scottie like, Pippen. Scottie Pippen did a I, musical, huh? <laughs> hmm. I'd love to see that. You know, how great would it be to bring back Pippen and have Scottie Pippen as Pippen? Now, that uh, sounds like uh, a beginning of a poem. But I'm I, not going to argue I, with a good I, time. I think, I think that would be amazing. And I guess Jordan would be King Charlemagne. I don't wow. know the story, but, but I'm, I would buy a ticket. <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm the Nick fan that suffered throughout all those years. My you know, what? Apologies. Yeah. yeah, but not this year. This is our year. We're, we're there. We're in the playoffs. We even have a home, home, home court. So I've heard you say that it took you a while to feel comfortable on stage, which is something, listen, Barbara Streisand, Carly Simon to this day still have struggled with. But for those that are listening that may not be aware, you performed not only in front of wonderful, wonderful, great people, but you've also performed for a president. You performed for Obama. I believe mm -hmm. you performed for Hillary Clinton and I believe Oprah, who has, has certainly mentioned you. Give us a sense of what that experience was like for you, knowing these people are in the audience. Well, Obama and Hillary was on the same day, and it was when Howard Dean was running for president. So it was before Obama became president. Wow. And he was speaking. Before the scream. Yeah. Before Howard no, Dean scream. Yeah, it was yeah, before yeah. the scream. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was about, I think, two months before the scream. And he was a real prospect at that point. Oh, I mean, yeah. People really thought he had it. He was the front runner and mm -hmm. people thought he had a, a chance to do it. And it was 
a fundraiser. There was maybe 3,000 people there or something like that. It was outside in, I want to say Bergamont Station. I don't remember, but it's in Los Angeles. Yeah, man, I performed. The Red Hot Chili Peppers performed. But I was really like not very accomplished at that time in terms of I don't think my bio was as long as as it is now. And I certainly wasn't making any money. I had written a political poem and I wrote it for me. And then they gave me an opportunity to get up and perform it. And I finished and people just went crazy, man. And Howard Dean, as I walked off stage, brought me back on stage and he put my hand up in the air and he said, what about in queue for president? And everybody went crazy. And then I walked off stage and Obama was, was standing there. And I didn't know who he was, but I knew who he was. In terms of, I, like, I knew who he was, but I didn't know who he was going to be. And yet I still felt a gravitational pull around him. And I'm not overly spicing up the story. I remember being like, this person's special. And he was like, I was really moved by your poem. We chatted for a few minutes. And then he was like, let's stay in contact. And he gave me his card. And I lost his card. <laughs> well, it was, able, it was kind of easy to find a few years later. So, You know, I never connected with him again, but he had bigger you will. on his you plate. Will. I think you will. I, I, I definitely think you will. I want to get back to the book before we wrap up, because I think it's as much as I want everybody listening to this book, the cover of the book is is a work of art. And for those that aren't looking at it, talk about the meaning of the tree and the roots, because it's just such a fascinating cover. And this is the book Inquire Within. Yeah, so I have it. It's right here. So for anyone who is watching this in person, you'll see that the uh, branches mirror the roots. And so when you turn it upside down, the roots become the branches and the branches become the roots. And then when you turn it to the side, it's lungs. And so that's why the two halves of the book are inhale and exhale. And inhale is the personal poems. It's kind of like my poetic hero's journey. And exhale is the social and political stuff. So it's really change yourself, change the world. I called it Inquire Within because obviously that's connected to my first name, Inquiry. But it's also where that one true voice is inside of you. You know, you can't look outside of yourself for validation or for direction. Ultimately, you have to connect to that one true voice. So this material helped me to do that. And I hope that it helps others as well. I love when a guest answers my next question. That's, that's just beautiful because my next question was going to dig into that and you, you nailed it. <laughs> Did you like the process of writing the book? You know, it was stressful at times, but I loved the process and I love the product. When I pick up the book, I'm proud of it. When I listen to the audiobook, I'm proud of it. You know, we were nominated for an audiobook award. It's just been so well received. The process of marketing and putting it out was very complicated because it came out on, I think, March 31st of last year, which was during the height of the anxiety around the global pandemic. And it was just very difficult to have to promote something, even something that I loved so much with so much of an, 
uncertainty and pain and suffering that was out there. Look, that was certainly unexpected. We ended up selling enough to be in the running for the New York Times bestsellers list, but we didn't end up making that. And we had so many other corporate gigs that were booked where people were buying, you know, a thousand books here, a thousand books there, and they all got canceled. You know, I remember going to New York, literally like when I got on the plane, it was one thing. And when I landed, like five shows had been canceled, which is, you know, not only really impactful for the book and the success of the book, but it was also just monetarily like, whoa, okay. But then again, as I said, this was medicine for me to write. And I knew that it would be medicine for people to read. And in many ways, I think people having this book in their lives during this period of time was even more of a comfort. So, you know, I don't judge God's timing. I'm just, just following along like everybody else. Your book is the first book I have ever listened to in one sitting. Mm, well, it was more than a, it was more than a sitting. It was a lot of walking and and little driving and a little bit of everything. But I I, I just just stopped everything because you know it's not like it was an Agatha Christie novel. I got to find out who did it at the end. Okay, but I just wanted to see where you were going after that first half. Using the basketball analogy, it was a great second half, and 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 the last five minutes were were, were really. <laughs> Really, something else, and I hope you write more in the future. I hope, you, hope there's another hope there's another book coming for you. I have enough material to do another poetry book now. I'm just kind of like giving this a little bit more time to be in the world, and then I want to do a, a a workshop book as well. So there's a not only do I do these uh, company yeah, what talk about the wor- workshops a little bit for a second. Yeah, so you know I get hired all the time to do these. We're starting to do them in person again, but a lot of them are digital. And even digital, they're just so unbelievably powerful because it's not only people experiencing my poetry, which really works for keynotes and conferences and things like that, but it's people getting a chance to dive into their own lives and to connect with each other. It's a trust building exercise for coworkers or for teams or for events. And so this has been one of the great unintentional gifts of my life because I started out doing this for kids. You know, I was working at Upward Bound, you know, kids who'd never gone to college for the first time. And, you know, I would do these poetry workshops for them. And I had something with this group in East LA art chair. It was like border of East LA and downtown. I would just like literally do these weekly workshops with these kids. And it was so heart opening for them and mind expanding that when I ended up getting into company and corporate work, I realized it not only works on kids, it works on everyone. <laughs> and I'm able to tie it into whatever is going on with the company right now. I can like take a bigger purpose and I can make it a personal purpose and allow people to reconnect to why they're there in the first place or to explore a moment in their lives that changed who they are. And then share that moment with their coworkers and they actually like see each other behind the curtain for a minute. You know, a lot of communication issues come from lack of context. So this is like something that really allows people to connect and then collaborate and create. And then I've also been doing these public workshops. And so I'll just do these like public series called the new you and 150 people sign up and we do a four week class together. It's just remarkable. 
It really is like, you know, I had my final one for this session on Sunday and people laugh, people cry, you know, they were just from the bottom of their hearts thanking me for having this experience, I think, especially during this time. And it's an honor to be able to facilitate that for people. I don't look at it from the standpoint of it's me. I look at it from the standpoint of like, this is a real honor that they allow me to create that space for them. Well, you're going to be creating that space at my company, UBS. I can, I can certainly assure you of that because I've done a lot of interesting events at, at my firm in the last year. And what you have to say is what not just all of us that do what we do, but the people that we represent, the people that we help with, with money and their lives, they, they could benefit from your message. So we'll, we, will, we will talk more about that one. That is mm-hmm. more to come. So a couple quick lightning questions before we wrap up here. I'm going to throw a special LA lightning round question (laughs) to all my LA fans. And I lived in LA for a few years in the eighties. Apple pan or in and out? In and out, but it's only because I've gone there way more. Apple pan is also special. All right, now you're not getting any UBS gigs. That's done. We're taking that off the table. <laughs> you know what, man? That's I Nirvana stand, for me, man. Apple I stand Pan. by my truth, oh, my friend. Okay, you got well, and I stand by mine. And I quality forever. It says it right on the menu. It says it right over the Apple Pan sign. And boy, that place saved my life in the middle in the early '80s when I moved out after I worked for Larry King and I worked in TV for a couple of years and gave it the old college tried, so to speak. I happened to live in the neighborhood near where the Apple Pan was and and had spent many late nights there that met an amazing amount of characters and celebrities and all kinds of things. But it is the first place I go to when I land, and it is the last place I go to on my way to the airport, which it actually is on the way to the airport. But I do love In-N-Out, and I wish you know they would expand and, and, and would love to see it. I hear you. Uh, that hickory is special, that, but that you know what? If I, if I had to choose, I would probably go Canners above both uh, of those. Okay, I, I respect that. Many a night at Canters, like I respect that. You know, they they know me uh, on a first name basis. There, I'm like Norm <laughs> from Cheers. Hey, you have to have a place like that. It's really critical. So, last question. This is Tim Ferriss's question, but it's so good that I just ripped it from his book and threw it in my podcast. And for someone like you, it's probably really challenging in many ways because you're, you're such a wordsmith. So you're a magic genie grants you a billboard. You can say mm-hmm. whatever you want. The entire world is going to see it. What would it be and why? I would just say breathe. I would just have the word breathe. You know, like if I if I was gonna die in one minute, there's sirens in the yeah. background while that's happening. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like some somebody's going through it right now. If I was gonna die in one minute and I knew it, and I couldn't be with my wife, I would just breathe, and I would look around at all of the colors, and I would listen to the sounds you know, the sirens or the birds chirping outside of my window. I would smell the orchid that's next to me, whether or not it actually smells, I don't know. But I would feel my skin, you know, the way the air hits it. It's a miracle to be alive. 
the thing that brings us back to remembering that is the breath. It's the only thing that we do from the moment that we get here to the moment before we leave. And it moves energy. You know, emotion is energy in motion. So your breath moves energy and it moves emotion. When we can get rid of that trapped emotion inside of us, we can be more and more in the world. And the more in the world we are, the more we can respond to what's happening rather than our projections or our pasts. So I would just tell everybody to breathe. It's a great message. It's one I think about every day and really glad that I began doing more of that personally in the last year through meditation. So thank mm. you for, for putting that out there. So I feel bad because you're not a trained monkey, <laughs> but is there anything that maybe you could kind of play us off with? Sure. You wanted to hear. I heard, I heard. Bird and the fish, right? No, yeah, no. Yeah, it was a, yeah. yeah. The goldfish was just kind of my first introduction to you. And I, I'd love for people to hear it. Sure. So I have to read this, but they say a goldfish will only get as big as its bowl. But when you put it in a tank, the space can change the way it grows. It needs to have the room or its potential doesn't show. So its environment's essential for unleashing the unknown. I ponder if it knows that it could grow beyond the bowl, that it could have a pond the size of an Olympic swimming pool, that the world is so much larger than the boundaries that it's known. Somehow I empathize with this little golden soul. Because I too have unexplored and unexpressed goals that were suppressed by an environment I couldn't control. Am I still playing small because it's all that I've known when there's a giant in my bones that I'm not sure I've ever shown? I ask myself these questions when I'm purposely alone. When my body grows to take up all the rooms inside my home. I expand in all directions, every single inch consumed. I'm a million feet tall now, my head over the moon. I look down on the earth as it slowly spins around. I look down on the countries and the cities and the towns. I look down on the square blocks and buildings all around. I look down on my street and rip the roof right off my house. I look down on myself sitting, writing on my couch. Look, I barely pay attention. I'm the one that's looking down. How unaware I am of where I am. It's profound. So I put the roof back on and shrink myself back to the ground. It's crazy how I fit infinity inside my doubts, how I stuff the universe into the tiniest amounts, how I keep the solar system in the corner of my mouth, how I speak into existence but forget what I'm about. And most days, I'm not sure which side of the glass I've been on. I win a Grammy in the shower every time I sing a song. But when the spotlight is on, my first instinct's to run. I have to super glue my feet to even tell you where I'm from. I've been training for the quarantine since I was very young. For an introvert, it slightly hurts to tell you that they'll come. Yeah, I'll come. No, 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 I'll come. Me, I'd rather get into a staring contest with the sun, although I'll never see who f won.
its nature and its nurture, twisting into jungle life, fighting the competition, branching out to reach the light. I tried to listen, but could only hear my ancient heart. It screamed at me to make my life into my greatest art. But where to start? My walls are keeping people out and keeping people in. I guess it's good to know where someone ends and someone else begins. But our boundaries become prisons when we see what could have been. The biggest goldfish ever measured 18 inches, snout to fin. In cue, thank you. The book, Inquire Within, we will link to that. We'll link to his website, his programs, that audio book, which you got to listen to. And he is selling goldfish t-shirts, as we, I'm joking. No. <laughs> It's a good idea. Why not? So everybody, thank you. Resonate Recording, thanks for all the editing work on this show. And as we say every week, remember when you're saving for your financial future, I'm going to add something. First of all, breathe. And second of all, pay yourself first. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for subscribing. Have a great week. It's been said and done. Every- 